Last week, however, was amazing. Jen got up to bat, and it was uh, really well done. If you don't know about our podcasts, don't do this now or do this now, but search, on, go on our website. There's a little podcast launcher. It'll play right to your phone. If you need some help, just ask your kids. Um, but you definitely want to get last week's uh, discussion on social justice and how that relates to who we are as a church. The reality is there's some distinctives about this, this place, about this tribe, okay? Um, and so today we're going to be working on that third statement, and it reads like this. Let's just read it, uh, and then we're going to eventually get into this and kind of parse this a bit. It says, we see a church that values worship that exalts God. Doesn't sound revolutionary right there, but we believe that when God is lifted up, we have the privilege of experiencing his presence and have a greater opportunity to discern his truth. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the reality that this is a church that we see. This isn't necessarily the church that we have, right? This isn't the church that uh, is already real entirely, 100% all the time now. This is a church that we see, meaning this is what we're aiming towards, right? A church that, that expresses itself in these following ways. So I'm going to get a couple of things done in the next few minutes. Um, we'll get into the wording of that statement. We'll talk about why that is. We're going to get real practical, but first I want to lay a foundation. So hang with me for a second here. We talked about this. In this series, we're attempting to answer some of the following questions. Who are we? Why are we here? Why do we come here every Sunday morning? Why do we make the effort to be part of this community, right? Why are we so dadgum different than other churches? I just had to put that word in there. Dadgum. You like that? I hyphenated it, and it said it wasn't spelled right. And I said, what do you know? Dadgum, that's a word. Why are we so doggone different than other churches? What's so different? Why does it feel so odd? Why have some of us literally almost given up on church, and then we stumble into this place and say, I'm going to give it one last shot. Why are we so different? What's, what's, where is the sauce, right? What are the basic, and here's the bigger question, what are the basic and enduring components of the local church that have to be present when she comes together to be able to say, that's the local church, right? What are those things? What are those moving parts? I have a feeling they're fewer than you grew up thinking they were, because they're certainly fewer than I grew up thinking they were. I thought it was all kinds of things, like how you worshipped and whether you could put a trap kit, drummer or drum set for those of you non-musicians, could put a trap kit on the stage, right? I mean, I thought it was all of these issues. In reality, I have this, have this hunch that the core essential moving parts are fewer than we thought, but it's essential that we understand what they are. You see, in some real ways, the answers to these questions about who are we, what are we doing here, what are the things we do, what do we gather around, in some ways, the answers to those questions uh, change all the time. There is a sort of creative license in this place that allows us to kind of tinker, right? However, I would remind us in very profound and important ways, the answers to these questions remain the same for all believers of all time throughout the generations. Does that make sense? There's a sense in which it changes, it shifts, it looks, it acts, it sounds a little different, but there's also a very profound sense in which these things aren't to be trifled with. Some things are not up for grabs, but I'm getting ahead of myself, we'll get there in a minute. Let me take you all the way back to the beginning of ANC, about nine years. Now, I wasn't here. Where was I nine years ago? I was still in grad school, up to no good, working in a quarry, shoveling snow. Yeah, no more, none of that. But way back in the beginning, right, this language of a church that values worship that exalts God um, is an expression of a certain decision made around what kind of church are we going to build? What kind of church are we going to be? This won't surprise you, but there are competing schools of thought as to what, what to do on Sunday mornings, right? Again, I see 12 or 15 seats up here, so y'all can, you're not gonna interrupt us if you wanna find some seats. Somebody, Drew, 
Will you just be in charge back there and tell people that there's seats up here? You can, you got that, Haskins? You got that? Okay, you're in charge of that. There are competing schools of thought as to what we gather around. Now, some of these are going to resonate. Some of these are going to be like, what? If, if you come from the liturgical part of the body, and so that could be the Roman Catholic, that could be Orthodox, that could be some of the higher Anglican or uh, Episcopal here in America, or even some of the Presbyterian churches, you might say that you gather around the symbols to reenact literally the redemptive overtures of God in the world. So you gather around these things. They never change, interestingly. The mass never changes. The movements of mass never change. There's this ancient rhythm around which you gather. And so the point of the Sunday gathering, which is what we're talking about today, is literally to gather around those things that don't change because in this redemptive arc of activity of God in the earth, he's remaking things through this very expected and very routine series of engagements, right? Some of you think, I've never heard of that. Some of you think, yeah, that's how I grew up and that's why I'm not there. But if you come from that part of the body, that, that's what you gather around on Sundays. If you come from the Pentecostal charismatic part of the body, you gather around to remind yourselves that there's a real devil and he's getting stuff done and y'all have to like circle up the wagons to fend off what's happening in the world, right? I mean, you get that visceral, emotional sense of this is not yet fully redeemed and we've got to make it so. And so you gather around that. Does that make sense? If you come from the seeker-sensitive or the evangelical part of the body, you might gather around a very simple telling of the gospel in as simple terms as possible where the focus isn't doctrine or the focus isn't uh, uh, Belief, the focus isn't theology so much as the focus is a very simple presentation of the gospel. And it sounds like you're hearing it for the first time every week because that's what you're doing. You're hearing it for the first time every week, right? And those kinds of churches specialize in birthing people into new belief. I've been part of those. I've been part of all of these. But ANC has a very particular thing that we're saying when we say these are the components, these are the moving parts of the Sunday assembly when we gather. Every one of those other things is legit and is a contributor in its own way, and it is far from us to denigrate or to say those things are not uh, important. They are in other traditions, but let me, let, let's start to dig into why we do what we do. We go vertical, is the way Brandon would say it, on Sunday mornings. And what does that mean? Well, there's these two movements, right? There's the going horizontal thing, and then there's the going vertical thing. And on Sunday mornings, we gather around a common call to focus on God we sing about it, we pray about it, we talk about it, we go vertical on Sunday mornings. It's our focus on God. Church has always been an organism that has to balance between these two different movements, right? The gathering and the sending. The gathering and the sending. And if you were here about this time last year, we did a whole series on that. How it is that one organization, that one organism, both gathers and sends, and gathers and sends, and that's the rhythm of the church. And it's always had to figure out a way to find a balance between those two things. It's both and. It's not either or. So we divide our efforts as a people where the reality is most of what we end up doing is going horizontal. But there's this one time a week when we gather and we retell our story in profound ways that has everything to do with how we go horizontal every other day of the week. So let's, let's try to lay a biblical foundation for this. Let's tie this together in the words of Paul as he writes to the Ephesian church, chapter two, these words will be on the screen. It's a bit of a pericope here, so hang with me. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised 
by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. I'll leave that to you to explain to your children. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. He's writing to primarily Gentile people. Okay, that would be us. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were uh, far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away, that's us, and peace to those who were near, that was the people of Israel at the time. For though him, for through him, both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. I love that imagery here. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone or the stone upon which every other plumb line is set. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. What is that now? What rises? What rises? That new people that he's created out of two hostile or two uh, entrenched different things. A dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. So let me try to summarize this very briefly. So we were once not a people, And through the work of Christ, now we are a people, right? We're talking about the community of faith. We are a thing now where once we were not a thing, where he had nothing in common. The dividing partition has been removed, making way for the redeemed community. No more strangers, foreigners, refugees, outsiders. None of that applies anymore to the work of Christ. Just brothers and sisters of a single humanity or a single household established in Jesus Christ. And Paul calls all of this, Miraculous work of bringing together things that don't belong together as, boom, the dwelling place of God. What are we talking about? We're talking about the church. Now, you may not think about this often, but the church is something that we inherit. It's not something we reinvent with every capricho and berrinches. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? I don't know why I wrote that. We don't just reinvent the church whenever we have a whim or whenever we decide we don't like that. Let's redo that. There is a profound reality in which we, we put flesh on something that we, inherit, that we inherit, something that is given to us. It might feel to you like we just do whatever in the cafetorium of Bailey Middle School. But it's not just a whatever thing we do when we gather. There's a way in which these moving parts have never changed, okay? So let me clarify something, and then we're going to talk about what those moving parts. It's going to be super practical. But let me clarify something real quick by saying this. The word worship does not mean singing. Sorry, band. Did you know that? The word worship literally in Latin is the liturgia, which is the root of the word liturgy, which is the work of the people. So if we back up and say the church as she gathers in worship, it doesn't mean it doesn't apply to you if you're not the singer on stage or the musician or the the drummer or whatever. Drummer, you like that, drummer? Yeah, remember the 80s? Those were the drummers. Yeah, those were the bass players. Now, these are the singers, right? Auto-tune. But when we talk about worship, what we're talking about is prayer, it's communion, it's speaking and receiving the word, it's breaking the bread, it's sharing our finances, Uh uh-oh, don't go there, it's also serving the poor, perhaps most profoundly, but it's all of the work we do as a people of God when we gather. That is worship. 
So I want to back up and give it a better definition than just singing. You know, it's, it's very new and it's very shallow and it might in the end actually not be all that helpful to define worship as these songs that we sing when we gather because it skips over all the other things that the rest of us do when we come across those dividing lines and we literally create that dwelling place of God. Okay, so you're with me. The movement of the gospel goes from belief to action and the people of God have things that need to be done in the household of God. All right, so let's talk about, let's get super practical. What are the things that we do when we gather? What do we gather around? Well, number one, it's biblical teaching. We do it every week. You say, well, it's gonna lose its meaning if you do it every week. We do it every week because this is what we believe belongs in the middle of, uh, part of one of those pieces in the middle of what we do. Generally, and if you've not been here very long, this might not be familiar with you, but we like to preach through books of the Bible. Does anybody know why we like to do that? Why do we just take Matthew and just grind it out for nine years in Matthew? Why do we do that? We ask questions that are meant to be answered, actually. How strange. Oh, my God. Yeah? Because we learn that way? Why, why do, knowledge. knowledge, but why do we go from the beginning and just go all the way through? Somebody said context. Somebody else? Yeah, as soon as Jen says context, nobody else has anything to say. <laughs> Come on, guys. Why do we do that? God gave it to us that way. But why do we go in the awkward, weird, strange chronology of the actual book? Why do we do that? One big sitting, that's a big espresso to get you through the whole book, isn't it? Why do we go the whole, because you know what? It's very difficult to airlift little truths and pull them up and say, okay, we're gonna put this over here. We're gonna put this one over here. It's difficult to do that when you actually know what the therefores are there for, what he did before when he says, do all these things, dot, dot, dot. We, we like to do it that way. Now, listen, I'm not saying it's the only way to preach the Bible. I sat under, I've sat under preachers for years who never preach a whole book. They just take a theme and they go with it. No one is saying this is the only way to do it, but when we gather, we have a particular way of looking at the word, and our probably most comfortable way of doing it would be we just grab a book and we go all the way there because there was a reason why somebody wrote the book. And if we can decode and recover and reassemble, then we're gonna, it's, gonna, it's gonna have a lot to do with what we do with that next, right? For us, the word literally, according to Psalms 19, is a lamp that lights our path. It helps us answer what the, the question, what do we do next? Or it helps us get to the answer of the question, what do we do with this? Or what do we do now? You get what I'm saying. The scriptures are our guide and the framework by which we understand our own story. Why does it matter that we constantly get back inside the stories of ancient people, men and women and children who wrote, who experienced the, 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 the man in the flesh that was Jesus Christ? Why does it matter? Because that's our story. It narrates our very being. It tells us who we are. This is why I'm a fan of just taking the whole book. You can't hide when you take the whole book. You know, there's this interest, I'll just tell you a little story. There's this interesting passage. Have you ever heard this? Worship leaders, you know this, that God inhabits the praises of his people. Anybody heard that? That's like every worship leader's rationale. Yeah, I'm making, you know, $130,000 a year to be poorly dressed and lead people with a wooden guitar barefoot on stage with thousands of people because, well, God inhabits the praises of his people, except the fact that that's a total and grotesque misquote of that passage. When Jesus hangs on the cross and says, why have you forsaken me? Those very words are the ones that end up being poorly translated that says God inhabits the praises of his people. The truth there is what it says is God sits on his throne and his people praise him. It's not the same thing. So why do we not teach little snippets and little cut and paste, little spliced pieces of scripture? Because you end up with things 
that might be true, but they're not true because of that passage. So they're biblical, perhaps, but it doesn't come from that verse. Did you understand what I'm saying? So biblical teaching for us, maybe I just confused some people. Take a breath. It's going to be okay. Biblical teaching is a big deal for us. What's another element around which we gather? Well, dynamic worship. I don't know about you, but I sit here every week and I think, how do we get these talented people to do this? I've been in churches with massive budgets that can't produce the kind of music and the kind of worship that we gather around and just take for granted. There aren't any really bad Sundays around here. Have you figured that out? So much could be said here, and I have to give a little disclaimer. I I was a former worship leader, songwriter and musician, and I'm a very horrible worshiper because I obsess about all the little train wrecks that y'all don't figure, you you guys don't hear them. I obsess about everything, the sound, the reverb on Lamar's voice, the, the left-handed drummer, you know, I saw Jim Eccles play a little gig uptown. I can't, I can't deal with left-handed drummers. They confuse me. It throws, Jesus is not on his throne when there's a left-hand drummer playing the kit because <laughs> I can't figure this out, right? Like, how does he, cr- it doesn't make any sense. It looks chaotic. But dynamic worship is part of what we do. Did you also know that Brandon is a former worship leader? And so, Brand, I shouldn't tell you this because now you're going to be watching, but Brandon and I sit here it's painful. Everybody in the building can be worshiping and we're obsessing over something dumb because we used to do this. We make terrible worshipers. But anyway, it's something that, value, that we value that matters enormously to us. It's something that we pour resources in. We staff it because it makes a difference. We've got big opinions about it. But even still, I think we have one of the best things going. Now, it helps that you live in Austin, Texas where we've got magnificent musicians that are waiting your table at Magnolia Cafe they're available, right? If you lived in Wichita Falls, it would be a bit of a struggle. But these things matter for us. And let me just give you a very simple definition that I think is, is, is good to hold on to. What does it mean to gather around? What is, the, what is the work of leading the people of God in praise? I think it's really, really simple. You offer just enough space and sound and language so that God's people and God can reconnect in a profound and, and, and impactful way. It's not a performance. It's not a concert. It's not the same as what you would hear on a Friday night in a bar uptown. It's different. Now, is that to say that some of the content of other music is not important? No, but we don't gather around the lyrics of Stevie Ray Vaughan. We gather around lyrics that quicken our spirit and remind us who we are, literally bring us back through language and through sound and through space and through rhythm into a place where we can remind ourselves again that we are his, that his love for us is relentless, and that his plan for all of it is to have it back. Dynamic worship is part of what we do. Another thing we do every week, and you know because it's marked with four little lamps, we gather around the symbol of communion every week. People say, you're gonna, you're gonna work it, you're gonna wear it out. It's not gonna have any meaning. Just do that once a quarter. No, we gather around it every week because in my opinion, according to scripture as, as I read it, there is no more concretely biblical thing that we do than breaking bread together. Jesus didn't say take wooden guitars and keyboards and trap kits. Jesus says, break this bread and do this in memory of me, and I will promise to be there when you do this. It's as concrete as it gets. Let's remember the word Eucharist, which is the word where we get communion, literally means fellowship. So what's going on around a table? What goes on around your kitchen table? I can tell you what goes on around mine. Fellowship, belonging, conversation, overlap, right? But there's something deep when Jesus says, do this the way, we've, the way we're doing this tonight. Do you remember that night when he said that? We say the words every Sunday. What was going on when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me? Anyone remember? 
That was the night he was betrayed. Literally by the following day, initiated the sequence by which that, that, that took his life and initiated the whole end, right? He said, do this in remembrance of me. But what did he do before he fed them at the table? He stripped down and he did what no rabbi does with his disciples. He did what no leader does with those who follow. He stripped it down and he said, this is the supreme expression of who I am. I wash your feet, to which Peter said, no way. To which Jesus says, all right, if you're out, you're out. This is the game. So when we gather around communion, let's just remind ourselves that we have to push through a reality that is, that, that, that is, that is brotherhood and sisterhood that has to account for the fact that we are here to serve. To emulate Jesus in the table is not just to have bread and juice, but it's literally to strip it off, strip off all distinctions and say, your problems are my problems. I will serve you in this process. Think about that. It's all there as part of communion. Jesus was literally, literally preparing them for his sacrifice when it should have been the other way around. It seems counterintuitive. But that's what precedes real belonging and real fellowship. And if you can read between the lines, you know where I'm going with some of this. Number four, another thing that we gather around is Bible-driven kids' church. And I know we hate to talk about this because we say every Sunday how we need new volunteers. I know all of you like to roll up in here and not have to pay any attention to them for this next hour and a half. But let me just tell you, I know, I know. The other thing is I actually know the person who directs that department. I know her well. We've got five kids together. She's my first wife. My only wife, anyway. <laughs> Bible-driven kids' church. Some people are like, this guy's weird. It might not seem like it due to all the announcements that we make, but we've actually upped our game in this area over the last few years. We've actually moved in the direction of something much more concerted that, that, that aims at literally transforming the life of kids. So it's not babysitting, guys. This is built on scripture and on narrative story and on activities. This is built on something that's moving our kids in the direction of understanding what God is up to in the earth and what their role in that is. That's not a small thing to shoot for. But we're on our way. We use a curriculum that drives towards transformation, and that's the bottom line. Now, here's the thing. You might hear us say all the time that we need volunteers and think, man, I can't teach kids. Well, here's the actual thing that maybe sometimes we should say a little more clearly. No one's asking you to create curriculum or to create the teaching. We just need some people to plug it in and make it work. And not even all of the volunteers are leading from the front of room. Did you know that? Maybe we'll see some volunteers maybe after today. Trust me, it doesn't bother anybody more than it bothers me to relentlessly harp on the same thing. But if your kids are plugged into that, just know it's an important enough symbol for us to build a church around. We need you. We know who you are. There's those little stickers we keep every week. If your kids are in it, be all in with us. Because Bible-driven kids' church matters. Most of the stories I know about Jesus come from flannel graph in those days. Am I right? I don't know if you've been around long enough. But I wouldn't, I know the difference between Jeremiah and Isaiah thanks to someone who made it very clear 40 years ago. Does that make sense? All right. So Bible-driven kids' church. What's another thing we gather around? It's, it's untouchable and nobody likes to talk about it, but it's, it's, we do it every Sunday. And it's the opportunity to put our finances in one place that values who we are as a people. We almost never talk about this as an element of worship, but remember, worship is the work of the people. It's all of this, guys. But believe me, this matters. A couple of years ago, we got ourselves in a position where we literally couldn't pay our staff because we never talk about this. And coming through the summers, finances always dip. We understand nobody wants to be here in August. Even the crows fly north. Everybody leaves. Uh, finances dip down to nothing. We get that, but it never picked back up in the fall, and we were looking at real issues 
And it became obvious to us, we don't talk about this very often. I want to drop this in the middle of a conversation of worship. One of the ways we exalt God together is by saying we're all in such that we pool our resources in a way that expresses as a body who we are. This is a staff to be proud of, and I'm not saying it because I'm on staff. Listen, we have no administrative help. We have zero secretaries. We have no hard assets other than the gear we set up in here. We don't even have a mortgage at this point. So lean isn't the issue. The issue is we need to be all in. And I want to challenge us on this this year. If your body is here and your mind is here and your heart is here, just show up in that extra way. Why? Because it's another way of, 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 of having a stake in the outcome of who we are as a church. You know this about this church. Other people are watching what we do here. This church has a strange little set of fiber optic cables that go out the back and cross the street and go to other places. People watch. Look at our podcast numbers. The vast majority of the people who listen to what we're up to aren't even here in town. And so let's just be all in this year. Let's move in that direction. I'm not going to harp on this, but I think you know where I'm going. Shoulder some load. Carry some load with us. More money that comes into this place goes back out into mission than probably any church that I've ever known or been part of, and that might be the same case for you. I'll move on. The last thing here. See, it didn't hurt too bad, did it, Trey? Did that hurt? Trey's not even listening. The last thing. (laughs) Busted. The thing is, I know that's going to come back so bad. I shouldn't have said that. Love you, Trey. The last thing, and we do it every week. You know we do it because it always happens right at the end. We do announcements. Well, there's no great sacramental value in announcements. Yeah, except that it's your chance to get involved. It's the moment where we offer little portals and little on-ramps and little doors for you to say, I can do that. I can sign up for that. And you know, if you've been around here at all, you know that we drive hard to action. It's not just about this. And we're going to talk about that more in just a little second. But it seems like a small part of the Sunday morning worship, but listen, it matters. It makes a difference. It's your chance to respond. We wrap that always. We wrap that up, our services up with an offering, and then we wrap it up with a benediction. And Trey always gets to do the words of the benediction. And let me tell you, there's no more profound theological movement in the Sunday service than these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. That is your promise, that your experience goes out into your life with you and is designed to impact others with you and he promises to be with you. These are the things that we think are important enough and you, if you know us, you know we do these every Sunday. We believe they matter. Now some churches on Sunday mornings are looking for discipleship or community or building solid Christian relationships and while all of that matters, ANC's innovation here is simply to say, unless we exalt God together, there isn't a lot of fuel to get those things done. So where do you find community? You're not going to find it here on a Sunday morning. Where do you find discipleship? It's, it's, it's connected to here, but it also involves many, many other things. And so what we are trying to say is this. Going vertical as a people on Sunday morning gives us some kind of track to carry into our week to do those other things. Okay? Let me address a myth. If you feel like your spiritual duty is fulfilled by simply coming in here with us, you're cutting half the process out from underneath the whole deal. Does that make sense? If you feel like you fulfilled your duty by showing up to church, that is absolutely not what we're talking about. Why? Number one, you'll never build community that way, and that's God's dream for you. You'll never build connection that way, and that's what he wants to to, to root you in. It's possible to slide in and slide out without ever leaking any of the real contents of your life, your suffering, your disease, your brokenness, your longing, your dreams, yourself. It's possible to slide in and put on the face and absolutely not crack the vault. And that is not what this is designed to be. Does that make sense? If you decide, well, I'm just going to go and it's done, 
Jesus, I'll talk to you next Sunday morning. You are probably going to start to, to, to show signs of isolation, signs of confusion, because that's just not how the Christian life is designed to be lived. You're going to miss out on community. You're also going to miss out on the shared impact that happens when people gather together and they pool their resources, their time, their creativity to change the world. Something powerful happens when we take the time to find the language to exalt God as a community. As a collection of people who otherwise wouldn't have a reason to be anything together, and I want to talk about this for a second, we don't belong together, guys. Look around you. We don't, you might belong with 10 or 15 of us here, but, but literally, look at us. We don't belong together. We cross all kinds of county lines and city streets and socioeconomic realities to come into this place to be one thing. This is not natural. This doesn't just happen. You get what I'm saying? We wouldn't be anything together if it weren't for this call to be this local church. Think of what we overcome. Here's the thing. When we conquer our differences, our dividing walls, the literal issues that draw lines between us and otherwise keep us apart, what we're doing is presenting God the throne upon which he sits. Think about that for a second. He sits on a throne that is erected, literally built, by people working through the stuff they have to work through to gather around the work of Christ in the world. We're literally making something real today that is not yet real for all things. We're pulling from the future and we're setting a beachhead right here and saying, this is the kingdom of God where social justice matters, where gathering together matters, where an impact in the world matters. So what's the net result of all of this? According to our value statement, when we lift God up together, we experience, go back and look at it, we experience his present different, presence differently and we perceive truth more clearly. What truth are we talking about? Well, it begins with the truth of who God is. God is a people gathering God. He's not an individual saving God so much as he's a people gathering God. And you're gonna see what I mean by this in a second. He's active in bringing all things home, bringing all things back, redeeming all things back to himself. The truth about God is that he cares about what you have to overcome to take your place at this banquet table of odd people. It matters to him what you have to overcome to get here. That's part of the truth we see more clearly. Another part is the truth of who we are as individuals. We are individuals in community. We are part of a whole. We're not the only point of reference. We're individuals embedded in a greater thing, something far greater than any of us represent alone. What's the truth that becomes more clear? Who God is, who we are as individuals, and then who we are as a community. The truth about us as a specific community is that we're put here for a reason in South Austin for a reason. We're put here because people right now are yearning and begging for evidence that God is real. And we're put here to become what our African-American brothers would call the beloved community, the redeemed ones, those ones that are set aside to show the love of God. Here's what I want you to hear today. While we willingly co-labor with other organizations in the city, while we are joined with other nonprofits who do good work, while many of us are gathered around the issues of social justice, there's something fundamentally different than just that and what we do as a church. Let me tell you the truth. On a bad day, I'm not sure church matters. You say, well, wait, you're a preacher. Yeah, I've given my life to something that sometimes, imagine this, I wake up and I think, if I didn't have to, I wouldn't go. I can just join any one of these nonprofits in town and get some good stuff done and not have to have the fights and squabbles it takes to sit in peace with the person next to me. You know what? Sometimes I don't care. 
Sometimes I'm done. I'm tired of articulating why I think something because I'm not even all that convinced that I can make the airtight case. And lo and behold, it doesn't convince anyone. And someone says, guess what? I'm gone because I don't like what you think. And I think, why does it matter? Why do we have to fight and squabble and draw lines and say, you're out, you're in, you're low, you're high, you've lost it, you've gained it, you're out, you're inorthodox. Sometimes I think it would be so much easier just to drive uptown, punch a clock and say, let's just get some stuff done. Why? Because because it matters to us. It's part of who we are. But here's the catch. God's plan in the world is not to transform the world just by raw action. He wants to transform human beings who being the transformed ones can transform their world and there's no other way but to sit in community with people who differ and who don't see the world the same. There's no other way to be transformed. I hope you can hear what I'm saying this morning. Now, you might know it's been a tough fall. It's been a tough quarter. We, as a board of elders, are dug in in different spots on this. We don't even have a univocal voice on issues related to sexual orientation and its role in the church, and we're working that through, and sometimes it would be so easy to pull the lever and say, I'm done arguing about this. But through staying in the game with people that I love who see things differently, I am being transformed into something different. And only transformed people transform the world, guys. Only transform people transform lives. Does that make sense? Can I, did I blow it? Can I say that much? The truth of the matter is, sometimes I wonder why we do this, why we spend so much time on this assembly, and then I'm reminded that we didn't invent this, we didn't create this, we inherited this, and by God, we are gonna die on the line of figuring out how to do this in love and do this in unity, not unanimity, but unity as people who are profoundly different come from different stories. We're gonna figure this out. You know, the onlooking world doesn't care what you think about Ephesians 2. The onlooking world doesn't particularly care what you think about the end times doctrines and the role of the gifts in the church. They don't care whether you have a trap kid on stage or not. The only thing people wanna see is someone who's been transformed by the work of Christ. And there is no access, hear me clearly, there is no access to transformation that does not come through community. You can't get there alone. It's not a solitary confinement way. It's not how it's done. You know, for centuries, we tried that. They call them the desert fathers. They retreated from society and said, you know what? The way of transformation is to get away from all you crazy folk. We're going to the desert. We're just gonna pray and fast, and we're just gonna get our spiritual disciplines on. And some of the great work of the ancient church comes from those desert fathers. But guess what? There was a profound migration There was a profound shifting of trajectories when they realized we cannot impact the world that we are not part of. And so pushing back away from community is no way of transformation. Now don't turn around and look to your left or to your right, but just know this. There are two different universes in those two heads. And somehow coming together as a believing group of people and sitting in communion and presence and in love with them is literally filing down the rough edges of your soul such that that place, that place literally is the throne of God, is the seat of God. He could have had any throne he wanted. He could have made it out of whatever he wanted. It could have been a million ton chunk of turquoise, Mac. He could have built that throne out of a massive Harley Davidson, but what did he do? He sits on the throne of people who gather and say there's something truer about me than I can define alone, and it's defined in a people group. And we call that the redeemed community, the beloved community, the church of Jesus Christ. This is why I say we can't tinker with these moving parts. 
We can switch it up. We can put the stage in the middle. We can sit in a circle. We can do this uptown at an old car dealership. We could do this upstairs in a bar. But what we can't tinker with are the moving parts, these simple moving parts that make the church the church. If you were to dig into the Nicene Creed, you would find these four words. The church must be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. What does that mean? It must be one, meaning it has one ambition. It must be holy. It must be set aside in the sense that we're different. We model a different kind of thing that glues us. It must be Catholic, lowercase c, which means it must be global, universal. It's not a regional thing God is doing. God is redeeming something much bigger than South Austin, and it must be apostolic, which means it must be rooted in the teachings of Jesus, literally. That's what makes us a church. That, those are the marks of the church that theologians would argue for. Every other thing that you add on to that can take on the flavor it needs to take on, but it can't ever be less than those things. And I'm just going to tell you the truth. Those are the hardest things to get right. It's so much easier to gather around a kind of music. It's so much easier to gather around a personality. So much easier to gather around a beautiful building with stained glass and steeples and whatever. It's so hard to hang as one with a group of people around the teachings of Christ because it's going to grind you. It's going to transform you, and that's the hope of the world. We creatively embody those ancient components of the redeemed community. Literally, guys, we're putting skin on the dream of God to have it back, to show what love looks like, to show what unconditional love looks like. That's what we're doing when we gather Here's my conclusion. Have you found the presence of God in this place? Have you found community in this place? Have you, another way of saying it, have you encountered yourself here? Have you in this church, in this community? Here's one. Have you been provoked and challenged and pushed to action by others who gather here with you? Have you had to go through the cycle of anger, frustration, resolve? anger, frustration, resolve with someone in this place? Have you had to seek clarification and ask for forgiveness with someone in this place? If you have, you are part of something that hurts and you know it's the real thing because it hurts. I wish community was easy. Guys, I wish it was just drop into a perfect pose and hold it in no pain. It's not. It's not that easy. It takes time. We see a church that exalts God, going back to those, th- those words, because when it does, everything else is clarified and set right. That's the kind of church that we see, which is why we do this every week, which is why we bother, which is why we sit in this place sometimes when it's 42 degrees outside and about 41 degrees in here, right? Which is why we sit in here on beautiful days like today, and instead of being outside doing something amazing, we're sitting here with people that we're getting to know. This is why we do it. I want to end with these words, come from the book of Hebrews. The author literally writes, he says, uh, not literally, he simply writes this, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Did you know that? It's the faithfulness of Jesus that holds you fast. It's not your faithfulness. You can't carry that load. That's a different sermon. We won't go there. To the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. 